Let's take our Bibles and read from Exodus chapter 7. A lot going on here. Consider the first seven verses of Exodus 7, a summary statement of the whole of the Exodus. And we'll keep that in mind as we consider the, the, the different plagues. We're not going to take them one by one, but we're not going to take them all together either. Just the first plague, as well as that preliminary sign of the rod turned to a snake. Exodus chapter 7, the word of the Lord. So the Lord Jehovah said to Moses, See, I have made you as God to Pharaoh, and Aaron your brother shall be your prophet. And I want to remind you, the chapter headings are not inspired. So an editor uh, thought uh, thought it wisest to break the chapters up here, but really... This verse goes with chapter 6 and verse 30, and you have Moses again complaining. He said before the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips, and how shall Pharaoh heed me? Then this, so the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you as God to Pharaoh, and Aaron your brother shall be your prophet. So then Moses goes along. You shall speak all that I command you, and Aaron, your brother, shall tell Pharaoh to send the children of Israel out of his land. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh will not heed you, so that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord." When I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. And Moses and Aaron did so, just as the Lord commanded them, so they did. And Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, Show a miracle for yourselves to attest their God and their authority. Show a miracle to yourselves, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your rod and cast it before Pharaoh, and let it become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went in to Pharaoh, and they did so, just as the Lord commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants, and it became a serpent. And Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers, so the magicians of Egypt, they also did in like manner with their enchantments. For every man threw down his rod, and they became serpents. But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. And Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. So the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning when he goes out to the water, and you shall stand by the river's bank, be the Nile, to meet him. And the rod which was turned to a serpent you shall take in your hand, and you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But indeed, until now you would not hear. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the waters which are in the river with the rod that is in my hand, and they shall be turned to blood. And the fish that are in the river shall die, the river shall stink, 
and the Egyptians will loath to drink the water of the river. And the Lord spoke to Moses, say to Aaron, take your rod and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their streams, over their rivers, over their ponds, and over all their pools of water, that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in buckets of wood and pitchers of stone, in which they would collect the water. And Moses and Aaron did so just as the Lord commanded. So he lifted up the rod and struck the waters that were in the river, in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. The waters that were in the river were turned to blood. The fish that were in the river died, the river stank, and the Egyptians could not drink the water of the river. So there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. Then the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments, and Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. And Pharaoh turned and went into his house. Neither was his heart moved by this. So all the Egyptians dug all around the river for water to drink, because they could not drink the water of the river. And seven days passed after the Lord had struck the river. Thus far we read Exodus chapter 7. Let me put it to you plainly, beloved. It's like this. There's two octogenarians, two people in their 80s, facing the might of Egypt, the great king of Egypt, Pharaoh, in the prime of his power. Two old men, Moses and Aaron, facing off with this Pharaoh. Hasn't gone well up till now. There's no prospect except the word of the Lord that this will go well. But this seems like a mismatch. Two octogenarians... And Pharaoh, isn't it like something thousands of years after that? There was a man born in an unusual way, to be sure, of a virgin, Holy Spirit conception. But this man, this man called the Messiah, would face off against the world and have to bear the wrath of God. Seems like an impossible thing. And then there's this, and it's like this even today with us and a thousand other little Christians who face the world and their own wickedness as well as the wickedness of the world. It all seems like an imbalance and that something doesn't jive here, it it doesn't work. That's what it's like. The beauty, knowing the word of God and the gospel of our God and Savior, is that it is, not just is like, but it is the case that God is with Moses and Aaron against Pharaoh all as well. And God is against the gods of Pharaoh and Pharaoh himself a god of Egypt and all is well. And God was in Jesus Christ reconciling the world through that man, that Messiah man, and so all is well. And so we understand that it is the case that with a thousand little sinful Christians like we are and a thousand little sinful churches like we are, God is with us 
and he is with us to make his name known and his glory known in our salvation and in the judgment upon the wicked. What a great and comforting thing to know as we begin the history of the Exodus proper. Now it begins, and there's Moses not shaking because God will shake the earth, and he will shake up Egypt. And this, so that he is known, and his name is known in all of Egypt, and this we know also is fulfilled in the fact that God will have his name known in all the earth by saving his own and damning the wicked. And so we want to consider this great and sobering and yet very cheerful account of Jehovah being known as the God in Egypt. And first we want to consider that he faces off, he does, against the gods. That's really what's at stake here. Secondly, we want to consider that he's here in Egypt to damn and to save. He's here to harden Pharaoh and to save his own out of Egypt. And finally, we want to consider this God known in all the earth in the fullness of time and at the end of time. Indeed, there are great parallels between this exodus for, for Israel and also the fullness and the end of time. So let's consider, first of all, God against the gods. You know that there were 80 main deities in Egypt, 80 gods, children, 80. And that's probably just the main gods. There were gods of the Nile River, there were gods of the land, and there were gods of the sky or of the sun. We'll be noticing as we consider the ten plagues just how God takes on those gods of the river and of the land and of the sun and the sky as he thwarts and flogs those gods by his mighty plagues. But we're going to consider only the first preliminary miracle and also that first miracle which is a miracle of judgment, the turning of the Nile to blood. But think of those gods. Have to think of those gods. We live in a world of gods. And children, you should know there's no such thing as a god, except that people make gods. Gods are not real. They are imaginary forces behind maybe powerful things in this earth. So Ra is the sun god behind the sun. And there's a force behind the Nile River of which we'll speak presently. So there's these things people make up in the place of God, somehow to get around the truth of God who alone has made the creation and who alone is to be worshipped. Enter God into this realm of idolatry, Egypt, standing as it does for all the world in its depravity and in its worshiping anything but God. There are the gods of the river, the gods of the land, the gods of the sky and of the sun, but there's only one true God, and he appears on the scene, even though that he's been known all along, but he appears on the scene in Moses and in Aaron, his representatives. These weak-kneed and hitherto stubborn and and unbelieving men who are now made compliant 
to God's command to go anyway with regard, uh, regardless of what you're thinking and to say to Pharaoh, let my people go. God shows up in Moses and in Aaron and in the rod and in the plagues. God shows up in the hardening of Pharaoh, yes, in the hardening of Pharaoh, and in his showing mercy on his people. God who is God, the one and only God. God doesn't need 79 other gods to get things done on the earth. He's the God over the river. He's the God over the sun, the God over the hail, the God over the frogs, the God over you and me, the God over everyone to save his own and to damn the wicked who stubbornly resist him. He is God. He is the real God. Moses has been taught that. There's been a lot of preparation for the Exodus, and there's been a lot of what we call, don't we, theology going on. The doctrine of God, who appears to Moses in the burning bush, which is not yet, uh, not at all consumed, but God is there, and God says, I am that I am. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the living God, the God of the living. I'm your God as well, as I was Abraham's 430 years prior to this, and I haven't changed one whit, and I'm in control even though you are grieving under the bondage of of Egypt. I'm God. And this real God, this only God, this universal God is unseasonable. That, That is, he's not... Someone who depends on the seasons, like the Nile God did, for example. And we read of this in the literature and how these people worshipped different aspects of the Nile River. Just a little bit of detail here. The Egyptians worshipped the Nile River. They worshipped the gods of the Nile River. There's Happy, a strange name, Happy, H-A-P-I, who is really the Nile god or the spirit of the Nile. There's Isis, that was the goddess of the Nile, Mrs. Happy, maybe. There's Khnum, who was the guardian of the Nile. And then there is this Osiris, who, uh, of whom it was considered that his body and his blood were the Nile River. So at least four gods all connected with the Nile River, which was a very important river in Egypt, in fact, the only one, which was a steady enough supply of water for all of the people in that desert land. So they worshiped these forces behind that, Mr. Nile, Mrs. Nile, and, and this one who was the guardian who kept care, cared for the Nile that it wouldn't go dry, I suppose, and this one who was so much a part of the Nile that is... His blood flowed in it, and his body was it, and and so on. And all of these, the Egyptians worshipped. And so they go down by the river, I suppose, and maybe that's where Moses and Aaron met Pharaoh that one morning when he was down by the river. He was worshipping the Nile, maybe washing in it because his God uh, wanted him to be clean. And so he would do obeisance and And maybe it was the time of the annual surging of the the rivers of the Nile, but others think not. In fact, that's maybe why there's pools and there's uh, other tributaries, because the the waters have receded somewhat, makes no difference. Still the gods, the seasonal gods, the gods of the Nile, 
are here. And, of course, they had the God who was a snake. They had a, a snake God, and, and that's why the preliminary sign that Moses and Aaron gave before the Pharaoh. And I say preliminary because when Moses was asked for a sign, Moses and Aaron, they were together here. It's hard to figure out sometimes who's wielding the rod and who's not, but they're one and they're working together to affect the, the, the plagues of God. But when Moses is asked to show the power, he, he throws down the rod, or Aaron does, and it turns into the snake. And we know that, children, we've been given these signs of Moses' rod that he would show to Israel and, and before Pharaoh, but just this one this time. And so there's this, this snake. Interestingly, the, uh, the, the uh, magicians are able somehow by their sorcery to also imitate or, or to also produce a snake out of their rods. And so their snakes are crawling around, and there's Aaron and Moses' snake crawling around from that rod. And we don't know if this is a real miracle here. I, I believe it is. It, there's no indication it's not. But it is a question, how can evil people be able to work miracles? Things that are not just illusions and appearances of things, but things that may be even miracles that aren't explainable by any natural forces. Well, we know from the New Testament that the devil himself is able to work lying wonders at the end of time through the Antichrist, and so I doubt not that these men under the cahoots of the devil and Pharaoh could maybe conjure up some miracle or two. But here's the point. God wins. God wins in that preliminary miracle. Aaron's rod eats up the snakes eats up the snakes and showing in a, in, an, in a wonderful foreboding sense of the word that there's more to come for Pharaoh if he continues to resist the overtures of God and the commandment, let my people go. So that was the first God that was swallowed up by Aaron's rod. And, and then there's this Nile River, Nile River. And as they were commanded, Aaron and Moses, they go down to the river one morning, unannounced to Pharaoh. They didn't go to his court. They went down to the river, and he was going down to the river to pray, and they were going, was Moses and Aaron, down to the river to show the glory of God. And so they told Pharaoh, this is what's going to happen to this river, and indeed it did. And Aaron stretches out his hand and his rod upon the river, and it all turns to blood not just the main river of the Nile, but also the tributaries and the water pots, the stone pots, the wooden buckets, and everywhere they were storing this water, uh, it turned all to blood. Now, some like to think, well, this is just in the appearance of blood. And every time that the Nile River surges in the, in the spring or June, July, or something like that, uh, it turns a bloody color. But there's no indication that this is not a miracle. It's not just the miracle of the color, uh, the river turning red at this time, but it's it turning to blood. After all, how else do you explain how the, sh uh, the, the fish were in danger of dying and the river started stinking? This was a miracle of God, just as he said it was. Called a sign, called a wonder, called a plague, or a beating back of the gods, as some people explain the plagues. And all of it showed 
There's a God in Egypt above your God, your main God, your main Mr. and Mrs. God, your guardian God, your, your God whose lifeblood is the Nile River. I defy your God, Jehovah says. How dare you worship other gods? How dare you commit your way and your children's way to these forces which are fake and which, after all, are just forces that you invent so that you get people to follow you? And so, right there, there's the victory over two gods, two downs, 78 to go, I suppose. But there's another god, Pharaoh. Pharaoh was considered a god himself. We've seen that before. And so others worshipped him. They gave obeisance to him. He had that power, that clout, that mystique about him. Imagine somebody thinking you're God. Talk about it going to your head, and it did to him. He was esteemed highly, and even though he was only one of the many gods, he was way up there as the king, maybe of the gods even. And this Pharaoh was a human god, the personification of evil and of antichrist and of, and of God not with us, but this idol with us in a man. And that man is a citadel of a man. He has a fortress strong. It's his ego. That's Pharaoh. The king of all egotists, the self-righteous, God-defying, mediator-defying man on the earth, Pharaoh. And he still will not let the people go. So there's God-defying the snake gods, defying the magicians too, defying the Nile River of all things. That God and those gods doesn't seem to be getting to Pharaoh, though. Pharaoh turns, and someplace it says here that he turns and he goes to his house. What a terrible tragedy for him. He's being hardened. So this is what is going on here. There is this assault on Egypt's fortresses, the strongholds of their pantheon of gods, the pharaoh, they're meeting not merely with Moses and Aaron here and not with two million strong of the Israelites uh, here, though they're meeting with them, but with God, with God. And all the devils in the world know that this is not going to go well. But so or such is the foolishness of idolatry and of those who make idols, they keep resisting, keep persisting. But God will not be mocked. It's striking that this God appears to Pharaoh in Moses, little Moses, raised in Pharaoh's court. Remember that? Where he learned how to be somebody. And then... 40 years in the wilderness where he learned that he was nobody. And then, as somebody has said, it'd be 40 more years we'd find out that God uses somebody who thinks he's nobody. 
figure that. But here the point is, God in Moses appears. God in Moses and Aaron together because they're just not enough. They need one to hold the other up. And God with Moses and a rod appears. They all three have to be there. Some inanimate object with this amazing, miraculous power when used in the service of God. And, and then these little men, who are after all little men, they're octogenarians, they're 80-year-olds, they're the people we'd put on the shelf and in the rest home. And they, they're like a team, they're not enough. One has to be the mouth of the other, one has to be something else for the other, and God shows himself in them. And then God shows himself in, in their words. They reveal something to Pharaoh. And God shows himself in the working of the miracles and the plagues and the blow upon the gods. And, and so that's how God comes to this people. Much more could be said about this, but let me go on. This is God here, hardening, therefore damning, and God also saving. Front and center, chapters 7 through 10, is the hardening of Pharaoh. No less than 18 times is it mentioned that there is a hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Three different ways this hardening is presented here. Number one, says at least six times, I believe, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Another way of the Bible saying it is that Pharaoh hardens his own heart. Then another way that the Bible has of saying this about Pharaoh is that his heart was hardened. So no one knows how his heart was hardened, but it was. So God is involved in Pharaoh, and there's this result, his heart is hardened. And this is a striking example here. In fact, it's the outstanding example in the whole of the Bible about what God does to somebody who dares defy him over and over and over again. It's what God does to a people like Israel, even, when they harden their hearts in the day of provocation, or to us, even, unless we have grace to repent and and not steel ourselves against the admonitions of the Bible. But the Pharaoh is mentioned here, uh, spoken of here as outstanding and as being hardened and hardening himself is the truth of Romans chapter 9. And you can turn with me to that if you'd want, but I'll just read this. Paul is speaking here of the election of God. Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated, he says. He, won, he loves, Esau, loves Jacob and hates Esau. But what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it's not of him who wills nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Now this, verse 17, Romans 9. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. 
Now, this is this mysterious way of God, isn't it? He hardens sinners in their resistance. They say no to God, and he gives them up. That's really how we can look at this. He gives them up. He gives them up to what they want. You want to be resistant? I'll give you up to your resistance. I'll leave you to your own desires and your foolishness. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. God gives up people to uncleanness, verse 24, in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So this is exactly what's happening to Pharaoh. He's given up to the Nile River. He's given up to himself. He's given up to the sun. He's given up to the frogs and the snakes and everything else under the sun, forgetting the God who's above the sun. And over and over, Moses comes and says, there is a God. I represent this God. He's over everything. And he says, I don't want him. Who is God that I should obey him? I don't know God. He only knows himself. He's only full of himself. So this is what's happening here. God is against Pharaoh to harden Pharaoh sovereignly and yet justly. God does not willy-nilly reprobate people in eternity, but he considers the justice of the matter. and He leaves in their sins certain ones whom he will especially harden. So they become adamant, from which we get a word, well, it's, it's a rock. They become rock-like. Their mind is shut off. You know, it's said that the mass of the thoughts of men are just prejudices. We are biased in favor of what we want to believe. That was Pharaoh. He could not and would not believe in Moses and Moses' God and he was given over to his own stubbornness and pride. This is a scary thing, beloved. Scary, scary thing. And so God is working here to harden Pharaoh. And he's going to lead him to destruction in the Red Sea. That we'll see by and by in some weeks. But now those magicians. Interesting, those magicians uh, who follow along and they're able to imitate with a cheap and devilish imitation some of the miracles of Moses. They are pictured in 2 Timothy and chapter 3 as those who resisted Moses and their names are given. Did you know the names of the magicians? At least two of them are named, Janus and Jambres, or Janus and Jambres. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. But those are two, and probably two of the outstanding magicians. There might have been a whole cadre of magicians and sorcerers and those who called upon the devil to do great things in the devil's name. But it's said there that they resisted Moses. And then it compares them today in perilous times who resist the truth, men of corrupt minds, disapproved concerning the faith, but they progress no further for their folly will be manifest to all as theirs also was. More on that in our final point, but there's judgment going on here. This is not just God showing off power, but he's showing off himself as the judge, beloved. This is an awesome moment in history, the church history. 
There is this hardening. That's the, the over and over again, the theme of these chapters. That's why there needs to be 10, complete number, 10 plagues culminating in the slaying of the firstborn of every man and beast in Pharaoh's house. These are types of the judgment at the end, types of the hardening, as we shall see. And that's what's going on, but positively and amazingly, there's salvation going on too. This is why God's in Egypt. He will let his people go. He will lead them out through Moses, through Aaron. He will lead them out this way. It's going to be hard. It's going to be a hardening. There's going to be judgments. There's going to be catastrophe. And even among the people of God, there must be this sense that the wrath of God is upon them as much as they are given to their idolatry, meaning that he's chastening them. For this is the case at this time. Israel didn't deserve to go out of Egypt. They had been led down there with great promise and they had begun well because they were under Joseph's tutelage and they remembered Abraham, but soon they forgot. And it's been 400 years and generation after generation and they're intermingling, they're intermarrying, and they're also worshiping other gods. I've brought this text out before, but I'll bring it out again in Ezekiel chapter 20. It speaks of... Uh, this idolatry. The word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel 20, Son of man, speak to the elders of Israel and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, have you come to inquire me? Then skipping down, say to them, Thus saith the Lord God, on the day when I chose Israel and raised my hand in an oath to the descendants of the house of Jacob and made myself known to them in the land of Egypt, write to this history, I raised my hand in an oath to them, saying, I am the Lord your God. On that day, I raised my hand in an oath to them to bring them out of the land of Egypt into the hand, land I had searched out for them, flowing with milk and honey, the glory of all lands. Then I said to them, each of you, throw away the abominations which are before your eyes, and do not defile yourselves with the idols, uh, idols of Egypt. Beloved, I wonder whenever Moses went down to the river the Nile River and met Pharaoh, if he didn't meet some of his own brethren down there, worshiping the same God. God had to say to them, while they were in Egypt, not just after, they showed that they wanted to go back to Egypt, but while they were in Egypt, Throw away the abominations. Do not defile yourself with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But, he says, they rebelled against me and would not obey me. They did not all cast away the abominations which were before their eyes, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I said, here's an insight into the plagues. Then I said, I will pour out my fury on them and fulfill my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. God's people there are under the burning power of God. It's as if they're being considered as the reprobates for all. They are distinguished later on in the plagues. There is this beginning they have, this 
congeniality that they have, this conversation that they're having with the idols of Egypt, the worldly. I will pour out my fury on them and fulfill my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. But I acted for my name's sake that it should not be profaned before the Gentiles among whom they were, in whose sight I had made myself known to them to bring them out of the land of Egypt. There at the end, he says, I had mercy. And I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And it's not because they're willing or running, they're doing anything better. And they know better. And they have a promise. And they're denying it. And they have another world to go to that's called heaven. And they have a promised land and they're just burning that promise. And so they suffer this chastisement. And it is deserved, but they will be delivered. So this is what's going on here. God is challenging the gods, and he's got the upper hand because he's the upper God. He's the God of war. He's the almighty God. Never be afraid of anything, children, knowing God is on your side. And this is what I want to leave us with. God was glorified here. And over and over, it says in these chapters, I will make my name known here. You're going to know who I am at the end of this. You're going to know that. Some of the Egyptians apparently were converted to this. And certainly some of them went along with the Israelites when they left the land of Egypt. And they were persuaded that the idols of Egypt were, were nothings. But God showed himself known. And he showed himself known in, in gaining the victory, even in the wielding of a two-edged sword, so that it was a savor of death unto death and life unto life, as the apostle says in 2 Corinthians 2. But it always was giving God the triumph, you see, as the God of power and of justice on the one hand in the hardening of sinners, and as the God of mercy and of power on the other hand in the saving of sinners. And that's just how he acts in these last days. The thing of it. Jesus comes, and he doesn't need an Aaron, and he doesn't need his mother. And he doesn't need an earthly father. He doesn't even need the 12 disciples, one of whom was a devil, to come to this earth and in the behalf of God say, let my people go. Let them go. I come and I speak to the devil in the name of God. Let my people go. And let my people who have been let go principally let them go more and more into the promised land and into the delights of the kingdom of heaven. Let them go away from their backslidings, away from their bad habits and all those sins that so easily beset them. Let them go. Let them go. And Jesus doesn't have a rod. He is the rod of God. 
He is the rod of God. And he throws down himself on the earth, as it were. Takes on sin, you can use the metaphor. Becomes as a snake on the tree. Remember, hung in the wilderness? That's a picture, John 3 says, of Jesus hanging on the cross. Accursed of God, made to slither around in the earth and be like us, but worse, the sinner on behalf of sinners, yet without sin. But then an object of God's wrath himself. Be, think of Moses and imagine Jesus in his place. Moses, he throws down the, the rod and he commands the river to turn into blood and he'll send the frogs and the lice and the boils and everything. And these things don't affect him. But the miracle of God is that all the miracles that are plagues upon the world do affect him. And he's exposed to that wrath as no one else. And this is in the fullness of time when he comes and says, let my people go. It has to be by his blood, not anybody else's blood or Nile River blood. Or your blood or mine, his blood, his blood. This is the gospel. And he makes us now to be his own. And we fight, don't we? We fight. A thousand little Christians in a thousand little churches. We're up against the same sorts of pharaohs, aren't we? Stubborn, hard hearts of an employer who's an ungodly man. Our own stubborn, hard hearts, our natural tendency to provoke God and to tempt God by our challenging God, by our pushing the limits and going right up to the line like little kids. And they look around and they say, is mom or dad watching? And we do the same thing. And we think we're the free people of God, but we're really Better naturally at being in bondage, aren't we? That's at least that comports more with who we are by nature, doesn't it? And this living out of grace and living out of truth, and even though Jesus has come, how can it be? And I say this to you with all my heart, beloved. I I confess to you my own natural hardness of heart and Self-deification. And even if I'm thinking of myself as, as little, I th- I'm, at least I'm littler than you are, I'm humbler than you are. We make a God of our humility, of our sanctification, out of our piety, out of orthodoxy. Oh, we're small, but we're better than the other churches. All this... Strange ways of finding any reason to praise ourself. Not odd. That's the odd duck we are. Sinner saved by grace. Simultaneously a sinner and justified. Never forget that, too. Because for all the sinfulness and the idolatry of, of Israel in Egypt, there is Israel in Egypt. 
for all the sinfulness and idolatry in your life and all your perversities and your pride. You're still a child of God. Don't ever forget that. Don't let the devil tempt you that way and say, oh, you must not be a child of God. Beloved, how big do you think God is in your battles? How how big do you think he is still, even though you've shown yourself a great big pharaoh of a sinner? He's a lot bigger than you think he is, a lot greater and a lot more loving and a lot more forgiving. Go to him. He's saying to you right now through the servant that he's appointed, yours truly, let my people go. And now you go. God has commanded. God has given the grace. Now you go. Let go of this world. Let go of all the things of Egypt that are so nice. And go follow Jesus. Who's beautiful. And who's the wonder of all those wonders. Whose cross is indeed a stumbling block which crushes the head of all the hard. But whose cross is salvation to many who trust in him. Revelation 16 speaks of the end of time. And I conclude with this as a very bloody time. Uh, Revelation 6, I looked when I opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. Then, Revelation 16, I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of wrath of God, the wrath of God on the earth. So the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the scene. It became blood. Think Nile River. Came blood as of a dead man, and every living creature in the sea died. And the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you've judged these things. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you've given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. Now that, beloved, is the end of time prophesied to us in the gospel of the Exodus, in that time. Jesus has come. At the end of the world, he will come again. And there will be a further judgment for all who continue in their hard, humanistic, proud, and stubborn defiance of God. Preach that to the neighborhood. Preach it among ourselves. The judgment is coming but also the salvation of God were greater than the blood of anyone else is the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from every sin. So God against the gods, he wins. To damn and to save, trust in the God who is against the gods and over them to save your souls and mine. Amen. We pray, Father, that you would make your name known in all of the earth and cause us to heed the gospel and the warning.
that we might be right with you and truly Israel in the midst of Egypt and not Egypt in the midst of Egypt. We pray, Lord, have mercy upon us. Find ourselves so given to our passions and to things and to our ambitions that have no thought at all of serving you. We're sorry for this. Bless, Lord, so that we can be sobered up and set on the path. And as we hear the commandment to go, may we go freely out of all of these things and sin closer and closer to home and to Jesus. Hear our prayers. Bless this congregation with your love and joy and resolution. We're going to be a people of the Exodus, and we're going home, and we're going to sing all the way, hallelujah, worthy is the Lamb. Amen.